Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Debrief on ABC News Live. I'm Kimberly Brooks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thousands of people are still missing in that deadly cyclone that ripped through Mozambique and other parts of Southern Africa. New Zealand is pushing forward with some major gun moves after the deadly attack in Christchurch. And we're going to take you to the moon, sort of. But first, your headlines. British Prime Minister Theresa May is blaming lawmakers for the political chaos ahead of next Friday's planned Brexit. An extension to that deadline has been granted, but it will only go into effect if Parliament approves the Brexit deal, which has already been rejected twice. The man accused of sending out more than a dozen pipe bombs last year to prominent Democrats, Caesar Sayoc, is due in court today. Progress in Puerto Rico, 18 months after Hurricane Maria destroyed the island's power grid. Crews have now reconnected the last power customers, shut down the generators that were powering homes for more than a thousand people who live on an island just off Puerto Rico's coast. This is Powerball. No winner of the $562 million Powerball jackpot in the Wednesday night drawing. The jackpot swells to an estimated $625 million for the next drawing Saturday night. Starbucks is planning to test recyclable and compostable cups over the next year. Customers in New York, San Francisco, Seattle, London, and Vancouver will get first crack. The company also plans to redesign its stores to accommodate mobile pickup and delivery orders. And one of baseball's greatest hitters is saying goodbye today. And the 0-1 pitch on the way now to Ichiro. Swung on and a fly ball in deep to right field. Mateo goes back, and this one will fly, fly away. When Ichiro Suzuki walked off the field for what's likely to be the last time, Dave Fleming on ESPN with the call. Mid reports Suzuki is retiring. The Mariners and the A's play this morning in Suzuki's home country of Japan. As I said, the search continues for thousands of people that were killed and some people missing in this deadly cyclone that ripped through Southern Africa last week. Just let that register. Thousands of people are still missing and already hundreds of people have been killed. It's being called the worst humanitarian crisis in recent history. So we have Ian Panel on the ground in Maputo, Mozambique with a closer look. Ian? Hey, Kimberly. Mozambique is in the grip of its biggest humanitarian disaster in almost 20 years. This huge cyclone, which is a local equivalent of a hurricane, came tearing through the central part of the country, hitting the port city of Beira and then moving inland, devastating parts of Mozambique, then into Zimbabwe and also in neighbouring Malawi. Up to 1.7 million people are potentially affected. Hundreds of thousands have lost their homes. We're hearing at least hundreds of people have been killed. The fear of the president here in Mozambique is that number could go over 1,000. But, of course, the difficulty at the moment is actually finding out the scale of what it is people are having to deal with. Because many of these areas are so heavily flooded, there was a dam that burst on the back of this cyclone that they're unable to reach these areas just to see how many people are being killed, how many people are still stranded. And we're seeing some really uh, terrible images of people 
grasping onto little bits of brush, climbing aboard uh, onto the top of trees just in order to be able to survive, hoping that some kind of help, some kind of rescue effort is underway. The big aid agencies, the World Food Programme, the UN, Medicines Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders are all desperately trying to get aid in. But of course, the country's ability to be able to funnel that aid out to the people who need it most is really limited. People are desperate for food, for fuel, and of course medicines. There are real fears of waterborne diseases that could spread, like cholera, for example. So this aid effort is only really getting underway. And although the winds have now subsided, the floodwaters are continuing to rise. And there is a real sense here that we're now in a race against time. Kimberly. Thank you, Ian. Yes, absolutely. Lots of recovery needed. So I want to go to Steve Taravella. He's on the phone in D.C. He's from the World Food Program. Steve, are you there? Yes. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, Kimberly, excuse me. Yes. So I just want to ask you, what is the biggest priority now that everything has sort of settled down? Well, first, I just want to say that that was a really accurate report, Ian. Uh, a really accurate picture Ian presented of what we're looking at on the ground right now, because this is one of the worst humanitarian disasters we've seen in that region. The scale, the scope, the, the level of desperation, the fact that after six days, some people are still waiting to be rescued and many have not eaten in several days. So as to the, the priority right now, it's getting people to safe, dry ground where we can provide them with food to keep them going. Um, one of our colleagues at the U.N. Humanitarian Air Service, which WFP operates, observed people waiting in trees, as your reporter described. But these are the same trees where snakes have taken refuge from floodwaters below. So imagine the horror of having to choose between possibly drowning and sitting up there with snakes. Uh, these are desperate, very difficult conditions. And it is, as you said, a race against time to reach people. Wow, I, I really can't even imagine even looking at the images. It's hard to fathom what these people are going through. How long, I, I hate to even ask this because it, it's crazy, how long do you think this is going to take to try to help all of these people? Well, that's the question of the hour, isn't it? Because while the uh, intense winds of the cyclone have passed, the storm is not over. It's still raining even as we speak, which is affecting delivery of all the humanitarian aid that we just talked about, but also basic communication. I mean, you're speaking with me in New York because connections with folks who are on the ground are so unreliable right now that it's difficult to, to reach them. Um, so, you know, that's another very significant challenge. All right, Steve, thank you so much. Um, I, I wish everyone the best that's helping out there. Um, so less than a week after a suspected white supremacist murdered at least 50 people at two mosques in New Zealand, the country's prime minister announced a ban on all assault rifles across the country. Here's some of what she said. The time for the mass and easy availability of these weapons must end. And today they will. And with that, I want to bring in Eva Pilgrim, who's joining us in London. Eva, do you think the prime minister, you know, does she have widespread support in the country for her plans? 
Well, we've heard from a lot of people who who support the sentiment of the prime minister in this. The shooter in this case bought those weapons legally, and so they wanted to make sure that this kind of thing could never happen again, banning all semi-automatic military-style guns so they can't get in the hands of someone to do a shooting like this again. Kimberly. Yeah, I want you to explain to our viewers how this is happening so quickly, especially since, you know, meaningful action around gun control is something that doesn't happen very fast or at all in our own country. Well, I think you have to look at a couple of things here. The prime minister promised 10 days or less they were going to have some sort of gun reform. She did this in six days, so she was able to come through on that promise. And she was able to work with people from different political groups to make it happen. New Zealand is a much smaller country than the United States, so it's kind of, if you think of it more in the realm of the size of a state instead of the entire country as far as the size of government that they're working with. And they were able to push this through very quickly because they wanted to make a statement about their view on guns and about making sure that a massacre like this doesn't happen again. And, and this is going to be rolled out sort of in, in phases. So the first thing that they're doing, she announced that it'll take 48 hours. We'll have a website that will go up with a form for people who already legally own these guns to then go and fill out that form uh, to schedule a time to turn in those guns to authorities. Now, if you don't have access to the Internet, you can also call your local police department and schedule a time to turn in the gun as well. But they want people to really go to the website because they think that'll be the easiest way to orderly get the in an orderly fashion get these guns turned in. The other big thing here is this is going to cost a lot of money. They're estimating somewhere between 100 and 200 million dollars because it's a buyback program. They're going to pay these people to turn in these weapons to get them off the streets, and that compensation will be given to them after those guns are turned in. That's a a, a country so much smaller than the United States. You think about how much more that would cost to do something in a similar way in the U.S. The numbers would be much much higher, Kimberly. All right, Eva. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. So the FBI has joined the investigation into the Boeing 737 MAX jet as new questions about pilot training are surfacing. Now, David Curley is at Reagan International Airport with the latest. David? Kimberly, quite a bit of news on the investigation. Let's begin with the broader investigation into the certification of the 737 MAXs after these two crashes. The FBI has now joined a Department of Justice investigation. The Department of Transportation is also investigating, and Congress will hold hearings next week on this certification, basically the stamp of approval from the FAA to allow the 737 MAX to fly. Earlier this morning, the Indonesians held a news conference to talk about the cockpit voice recorder, which they have had a chance to analyze now. We knew that the captain was at the controls at takeoff in the first crash, and that he was having trouble immediately with the plane nosing down. This is an anti-stall system, which was getting bad data from a sensor that was put in incorrectly by the Indonesian Lion Air maintenance crews. So the bad data to the computer was nosing down the aircraft. The captain was fighting it several times. In fact, it tried to nose down 21 different times. Now, finally, he gave up the controls to the first officer as the captain was then going through his emergency checklist trying to figure out what was going on. The New York Times reporting that the first officer who was at the controls, some of the last words were prayers, God is great, 
and the plane crashed. We also heard from the Indonesians that on the day before, that very same aircraft had the same problem, and there was a third pilot in the jump seat who was hitching a ride. There were reports that he's the one who told the two pilots to shut off the system. The Indonesians dispute that, saying that the three of them worked together, but they did what Boeing says is the procedure if the system inadvertently or incorrectly kicks in, which is to shut it off. There are two switches between the two pilots that shut off the system, and then you can fly the plane manually. Meanwhile, we are hearing from Ethiopia that the investigators from the United States and Europe are still working with the investigators there. It's unclear whether or not the Europeans and the U.S. investigators have the raw data from the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. And that's really important so that they can run the analysis to figure out was that second crash actually related to the first. We know there are similarities in the flight pattern, but is it because of the same reason? Is it that anti-stall system that kicked in? Now, the fallout continues, as I mentioned, all the investigations. And Boeing actually yesterday reshuffled its executives in the engineering department, three changes because of the 737 crashes as Boeing continues to deal with this. More on the investigation in the days to come. We're hoping something comes from Ethiopia here before the end of the week that tells us one way or the other. Are these crashes related? Is there a problem with the plane? Or is this an issue of pilot error? Kimberly, back to you. Thank you, David. Definitely a sad situation there. So in national news, the world, I think, this country and the world is literally waiting on pins and needles for this Mueller report to drop. I want to go to Karen Travers, who's at the White House. Karen, what does the waiting feel like in D.C.? Well, it's a pretty miserable day here in Washington, as you can probably hear. The rain is pouring down. The president just left the White House complex to head to an event with business CEOs. We're not going to see him, though, for a couple of hours, so the waiting game continues. But yesterday, the president was asked, does he know when the Mueller report is going to come out? He said he has no idea. Uh, so he's waiting just like everybody else, if you believe what he said yesterday. The president was also asked by our colleague, John Carl, about whether or not the Mueller report should be made public. Here's what he had to say yesterday at the White House. Mr. President, does the American public have a right to see the Mueller report? I don't mind. I mean, frankly, I told the House, if you want, let them see it. Again, I say a deputy, because of the fact that the Attorney General uh, didn't have the courage to do it himself, a deputy that's appointed appoints another man to write a report. And Kimberly, the president also said, let the report come out. Let people see it. He said he's very eager to see it. No surprise there after he spent the last year and a half trying to undermine that investigation. The president, uh, though, is now just like everybody else waiting for this. But it is notable that last week the president had suggested on Twitter he did not want there to be a Mueller report. The question was, did he mean more broadly no Mueller report because he didn't think there should be, have been an investigation in the first place or that he was sending a signal to the attorney general about what he would like to see about its release because ultimately as we know it's up to the attorney general bill barr about how much of this report if any of it comes out absolutely well we're all waiting and in the meantime president trump as we know was in lima ohio yesterday and he's still making comments about 
the late Senator McCain. Why, Karen? Why is he still talking about <laughs> Senator it's McCain? It's a big question. Yeah, it's the big question that everybody would like to know the answer to. You know, why on a day where the president is heading out to Ohio to take somewhat of a victory lap? This was an Army tank plant he was visiting yesterday, the only one in the country. It makes the M1 Abrams tank. And during the Obama administration, it was on the brink of closing because production was down. There were jobs lost there. Now, because of big increases in military spending by the Trump administration, that plant is booming again. Production is up. There are jobs being created. So the president goes there to talk about that. Instead, though, he takes a bizarre detour in the middle of his remarks, talking about John McCain, talking about what he said John McCain did not do for veterans. And then he also said this. He didn't stop there. I gave him the kind of funeral that he wanted, which as president I had to approve. I don't care about this. I didn't get thank you. That's okay. We sent him on the way, but I wasn't a fan of John McCain. So now what we could say is now we're all set. I don't think I have to answer that question, but the press keeps, what do you think of McCain? What do you think? Not my kind of guy, but some people like him, and I think that's great. Kimberly, the questions from the press are because the president has been tweeting about John McCain a lot over the last couple of days. Not clear why there's been this renewed focus on the late Republican senator who passed away seven months ago. We should also note that the president didn't approve the funeral. He approved the use of an Air Force plane to transfer McCain's casket from Arizona here to Washington for services. And President Trump was notably not invited to John McCain's funeral at the Washington National Cathedral. That was by design by the family. Three former presidents, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush were all in attendance. All right, Karen, thank you so much. In other national news, I am sure the college admissions scandal is something that families have been discussing over dinner tables all over the country. People have been outraged to learn wealthy families were cheating and bribing college officials in order to get their children into elite schools. Kana Whitworth is at USC's campus with the latest. Hey, Kimberly, I'm down here at USC. A lot of people considering this sort of ground zero for this college admissions scandal. And just yesterday, the university nominating a new president. And she said that when it comes to admissions, trust is really the most important thing. And that seems to be missing for students, not only here, but at universities across this country, including UCLA, which is just across town, where they're now famed, very prestigious women's soccer team is finding themselves embroiled in this varsity blues controversy. Uh, one player that is actually seen online, she's a member of the 2017 team, so they say, freshman midfielder Lauren Isaacson. But when you take a closer look at her profile, it shows no stats, not even appearing in the team photo. Her bio touts her as a four-year team captain for her Woodside soccer team and 2015 MVP, but their coaching director telling us that he is baffled. I went to UCLA and there we haven't had any players from our club recruited to any major colleges up to now. So definitely smelled fishy to me. I would say team captain and MVP would be hard to be that of a team that doesn't exist. So prosecutors say that Isaacson had no prior competitive soccer experience, that her parents allegedly paid more than $600,000 in bribes through college counselor Rick Singer to get both Lauren and her sister admitted to UCLA and USC. 
A singer allegedly using bogus sports credentials and falsified standardized tests to get them in. Now, Singer's actually been cooperating with this investigation, even uh, wearing a wire to the Isaacson's residence at one point. And Bruce Isaacson became very paranoid, and he said, quote, I can't imagine they'd go to the trouble of tapping my phone, but would they tap someone like your phones? That's pretty incredible. Now, obviously, current student athletes at UCLA and here at USC are outraged. Uh, both Isaacson girls are still enrolled in school. Lauren is no longer uh, on the soccer team. And at UCLA, their investigation is ongoing. The soccer coach has been indicted on racketeering charges and placed on leave. And as for the Isaacsons, according to this indictment, Kimberly, they were somewhat greasing the wheels for their younger son. They had apparently asked Singer to, quote, control the testing environment for his entrance exams. Kimberly. Unbelievable, Kana. Thank you so much. All right, there's a lot of flooding going on on this planet, on this Earth. So what about going to the moon? Maybe like with six of your friends? It may not sound possible unless it's a simulation, which happens to be the case in Russia. So take a look at this. Two Americans, four Russians will be locked in here for four months, 120 days, carrying out over 80 different uh, scientific studies, collecting data, uh, going on a simulated mission to the moon. Two of us will go to the surface, simulate going to the surface and collecting samples and returning. The main goal is to study a variety of uh, effects of uh, living in an isolated confined environment uh, over a long period of time on the human body. NASA Human Research Program is particularly interested in the effects on uh, behavioral health and performance. This is my new home where I will live for four months. Each of the crew members has their own, uh, their own room even. This is the commander's room which is a little bit larger. Uh, comfy bed, you know, you got a school there and plenty of storage space. We have our own atmosphere, our own uh, air pressure, which will be a little bit higher than outside, so no dust or bacteria will come inside. We have intellectual uh, lighting, so it will simulate the daylight on Earth. And uh, so we will wake up, then we have the sunset, sunrise. So you'll notice we have lots of cameras. Uh, I forget the exact number, but there are many, many cameras in every single angle. The Russians built this incredible facility. I don't think there's anything like it in the world. Would you try that out? A little too claustrophobic for me. <laughs> All right, so ESPN is continuing their coverage of the Special Olympics in Abu Dhabi, and I want to go to ESPN's Dana Schiltz. I am here with Matt Mullet. How does it feel to be a superstar? It's pretty uh, amazing to be a superstar. I like, have people come up to me and say, hey, how you doing? Can I take a picture? Like, amazing shot. It's kind of real. It's so that real that I hit that shot yesterday for a three-course court. You know, it's a great feeling. It's pretty special. Bring me through that moment, that, that ending shot. What did it feel like? Uh, you know, it was like three seconds left. So I was like, hey, why not try a shot? You know, it won't hurt nothing. Uh, so I was like, just, I chuck it. It was a nice form chuck, but I chuck it. it. I was like, oh, that's very short. And also, I heard kind a of swish. It was pretty amazing to see it all swish like that. So. Yeah, that, that was amazing. I keep going through it. 
going in the games, walking around the games, do you have any fans now that you're an absolute superstar on the basketball court? I had yeah, a few more followers. I it keep you guys up, or keep you a safe, you know. Uh, just, hey, can I take a picture? Of course, I'll take any pictures because I'm not that superstar. I just, I want to get a, get a, a racial shot, you know. So yeah, yeah, a few more players in the last couple of days. Did you ever dream that you would be on the Sports Center top ten? Uh, no, I would never dream it'd be something or sports center top ten. I mean, if it was, it'd be something ridiculous. But this amazing shot was not something I never dreamed of being top ten sports center. Then also, I was on New Boy America here, which is pretty cool. People have sent me the videos from it. I can't believe I'm on sports center top ten. It's amazing. It's a, I get used to watching think about being on the top ten list. It's awesome. And I heard Tim Red Pelt said something about me, which is even made more amazing. So yeah, it's pretty exciting to be on top ten. That is awesome. Well, congratulations, and I can't wait till you go home and get all these fan, more fans. Yeah, for my Facebook uh, followers, my, my blow up my page, my tag me every little video they see. So it's been pretty amazing the last, the last 24 hours. It's really cool to see, especially with the show up. And thanks to ESPN for being here, for what you do. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. That shot was crazy. And speaking of basketball, let's talk about Kobe Bryant. Love him or hate him, the man is a beast on the court. And now that he's off the court, he's mastering another passion, which is producing and writing. His latest project is a new sports fantasy book called The Wisenard Series. And a few days at back, he was out in New York at the NBA store to share his experience with some of his youngest fans. Take a listen. You know, I have a family of basketball players. As you know, Tiny alluded to earlier, my father was a basketball player. He played in the NBA. My uncle played in the NBA. Uh, my grandmother played at Overbrook High School. I mean, I, like, I have a basketball family, and so I was kind of born into playing. But the thing that I loved about the game, even at an early age, was everything. The sound that the ball makes when it hits the cement or hits the hardwood, the sound that it makes when it goes through the net, like the little buzzing that you hear in the gym when the lights are on. That's sort of stuff. Like, geek out about the game. Like, I love every facet of it. So cool. And if that wasn't enough, Felicia Rashad was there to read passages from the book. Check it out. Fake left, go right, step back, fade out, up, down, up. He whispered the moves to himself, hearing his dad's voice. Take the shot, drop the shoulder down, power up, go. There it is, Reggie said. And so after it was all done, I was able to speak to two of the kids who adore them. Listen up. One thing I really loved about everything he was saying is just like the love he has for girls playing too. What do you think about that? Him and his daughters? Um, I felt it like really inspiring because he is male and like I feel like they look like they look away from like female players. So I, I feel like inspired and more eager to play. He had so much good advice. I think it was for the kids, but I think even the adults in the room yeah. were pretty inspired. What's something that stuck out for you? The question I asked him was what uh, separated him from everyone else. Mm -hmm. And when he said curiosity, that really, that really um, spoke to me. Okay, so the last kid was actually a kid. He plays basketball, if you couldn't tell. All right, my friends, I hope you're taking very good care of yourselves. If you want to stick around, you can stay tuned for The Briefing Room at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time and check out World News Prime at 8 p.m. And if you want to stay updated on all of these headlines, you can go to abcnews.com or download the app. 
I'm Kimberly Brooks, and I'll see you tomorrow.